Welcome into another edition of School of Science Radio. I'm Gino Ganello alongside uh, Chris and Adam from Royal Blue Mersey. Uh, unfortunately, Brian can't be with us today, so we're just going to go with Chris and Adam, which I think is uh, sufficient enough. Guys, how you doing today? Uh, doing pretty well. Uh, I mean, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how sufficient it really is without Brian. But I appreciate your confidence, if nothing else. <laughs> Yeah, doing doing okay. I think uh, Saturday could have gone a little bit better, but it's uh, overall in Everton land, it's a little bit hard to complain about results in every game so far. I think is the is kind of my perspective. So, yeah, absolutely. And I, before we hit on Saturday, we'll touch briefly here on Rotherham, which went a little bit uh, better for us, I'd say. And and I think a standout player, somebody who got on the board and. Uh, really helped out and it's really good to see him back in, in full form was DCL and Chris we'll start with you what do you think about his performance and what do you think he can give us going forward I thought his performances both uh on Wednesday and Saturday were excellent I you know if he has learned how to shoot straight for lack of a better term I think the rest of the league is in trouble right because last season he scored something like eight or nine goals with with really pretty poor finishing. I think that was one of everyone's complaints about him was, you know, he would get into these really good positions and just miss or scuff the shot. And right now he looks great. And if he's going to provide that level of play, it's an entirely new dimension to Everton's attack because he can play. Well, you don't really want to see him out wide. He can play there better than the rest of Everton strikers. And he can definitely play the nine as well. So it's, it's something to watch for and he could be a, probably a bigger contributor than I really expected moving forward this season if, if this keeps up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, DCL getting on the board, I think it's really important just for having another person that can score goals, really spreading those goals across the board. And, and he did have, he had the goal um, or a couple goals, I think on uh, against Rotherham um, and, and performed really, really well, which is good for us. Um, but unfortunately, while we beat Rotherham, we also incurred, I think, some more injuries along the way in that game and over the week leading up to Huddersfield. And Adam, let's just talk a little bit about that and how that's really affecting our team right now. We have, I think, nine or ten players that are injured at this point and then a couple more that are suspended. It's it's getting kind of silly at this point, and it's really kind of causing some trouble with our starting eleven. Yeah, well, it, so often when we get to the, the first international break of the Premier League season, we're we're frustrated because we've just gotten back into it and we're, we're itching to play more, but boy, it really couldn't have come at a better time, uh, for Everton than, than it has. Uh, obviously the injury to, uh, Adresa Gay is the big one, the, the biggest one, uh, of the group. You know, we, I'm sure we'll talk about Tom Davies when we talk about the, the match on Saturday, but we just don't have another player who can do all the stuff that Ghana can. So that's a big loss. Uh, and then Bernard was uh was the other big one because this really could have been a week with Richarlison suspended and with the the game midweek against Rotherham that we could have seen Bernard really get an opportunity to get acclimated to get into the squad uh and instead he picked up an injury as well and spent it uh on the sidelines along with plenty of his teammates. Do you guys yeah. like how um they basically dropped Six injury updates five minutes before kickoff on Wednesday. The classic news dump. Oh my god! <laughs> and sent us into a spiral because we're like, oh god, I don't even know who's still who's still available. Yeah, exactly. Can I field eighteen players? Uh, yeah, well, fun. that was that was the problem. I was going through the before we went hit Huddersfield on Saturday. I was going through the players that were 
injured, suspended, or on loan, and I couldn't find 18 players that we could put on the bench or uh, have seven players on the bench along with the 11 players we had on the field. And, and it's certainly, I think it certainly played a part in Huddersfield, those injuries, because I think the biggest thing we have to talk about is having only one shot on target. And it kind of brings us back to those dreaded Sam Allardyce days where we can't find the net. Um, and, and Chris, we'll go back to you with this one. How on earth did we possibly have only one shot against a team that had given up nine goals in two games against, you know, Chelsea and Manchester City, who granted are very good talents, but a team that we should have easily scored more than one goal against? So I think there's kind of two aspects to this. One of them that Adam wrote about already on Sunday, and I'll let him get to that. But uh, the thing that concerned me is, are we already seeing an over-reliance on Richarlison in attack? Um, because without him in there, they just don't seem to have any, they don't seem to have the same quantity of ideas, I'll say, uh, because he could do so many different things, whether it's on the ball or off the ball or just being present and occupying defenders. And when he's not been out there on the left, they kind of look a little confused in terms of, well, what are we going to do here besides shovel the ball out left and let Richarlison just fix this? Yeah. yeah and I, I mean, it, it really showed just in terms of, like you said, creativity and, and getting the ball to certain players. And obviously injuries play a big part. And I think that Gay being out, uh, that, that obviously didn't help with how everything played through the middle of the field. Um, but one player specifically who did not have, I guess, as good of a game as he normally has, and Adam will go back to you on this, was Gilfie Sigurdsson, who only completed 10 passes, had only 31 touches. Um is that a little bit because of Richarlison? Do you think that, you know, Gilfie plays better with Richarlison by his side, or do you think he just had an off game? Well, I'm not even necessarily convinced that Gilfie had a poor game. We just couldn't find him. Um, and, and that was confusing to me because when, like you, like we saw with Huddersfield, Huddersfield comes out in a 5-4-1. Uh, and usually if you're playing a team that's going five at the back like that, you're either going to try to hit behind the wingbacks on the counterattack, but if they're sitting real deep, you're going to just try to exploit that numerical advantage in the in the midfield. Obviously, Huddersfield had two in the center of midfield, and we had three, uh, but yet we still couldn't find Gilfie between the lines. Um, and it's not the first time that this has happened this year. His, uh, his last week against Bournemouth, he played the the great pass uh, to spring the counter that led to Theo Walcott's goal. But outside of that, again we struggled to find him now to what extent is obviously the fact that we had 10 men that game. There's a lot of, a lot of factors, especially given we've only played four matches this season. Uh, so, but go ahead. No, I just uh, kind of a, a question for you guys. Uh, normally when Morgan Schneiderlin has a good game, Gilfie Sigurdsson has a good game, right? Because you're getting the ball for it and you're dominating the ball. I thought Morgan was good to great on Saturday. He completed 69 of 74 passes, which you'll take pretty much 38, nice. yeah. 38 Saturdays out of 38. So I don't know what, what's going on there. Does the, does the onus fall on Tom Davis to, to kind of connect those two a little bit more than he did? Well, probably a lot more than he did. Or is it Richarlison again? Or kind of what, what would be the, the breakdown there? Because Morgan was great and Guilty was just absent. I I think what what happened, and I did I wrote about this uh, this weekend as well, is in the first half for whatever reason we looked a little surprised at, at 
Huddersfield sitting deep and just like we didn't have the ideas to to break down a team that was always going to be sitting in a low block, always going to be sitting a, a line of five and a line of four. Um, and the result was that we were very, very passive, very conservative, a lot of backwards passes, a lot of sideways passes, not a whole lot of effort to, to advance the ball in the central channel. And then I think what happened in the second half uh, is probably Marco Silva laid into him at halftime and said, guys, you know, we, we've got to be more aggressive. We've got to try stuff. Uh, and then the way that that manifested itself was that we completely stopped trying to keep possession at all and just threw the ball forward any time. There might have been a, you know, 10% chance that we could have broken through the back line. And the result was a complete reversal of the possession advantage that we had in the first half. And we just never really got a rhythm going. And uh, now, to what extent is that on Schneiderlin as opposed to some of the other guys? Uh, you know, that's that's a, a question that I think is up for debate. But that the dichotomy between the two halves, I think, is a a big point when you're thinking about, okay, what went wrong here? Yeah, and just in terms of generating direct attack, Walcott having to go out uh, really hurt us because, you know, you think what you want about Lookman, but there's no question he's nowhere near as direct and incisive um, going forward, I think, so. And nor as fit at this point, you know, for whatever, you can believe what you want about how much he's been injured versus how much he's just been, you know, been kept out because of his attitude. But he's clearly, you know, been in and out of training at best. And, you know, the, the, uh, his wellness there kind of shows a little bit as well. Well, and I, I think we can talk about this now that we've brought up Lookman, one of the subs that Marco Silva made on, uh, on Saturday. And, and there was some multiple things that were a little bit questionable. And Adam, we'll go back to you because, you know the tactics really well here and really have spoken to that a lot. What do you think of Silva's performance? You know, his subs, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about. Switching to a 4-4-2, uh, was it the right move? What could have he had done differently that would have created more chances for us and allowed us to really get forward and, and attack this Huddersfield team? Well, uh, obviously the, the first sub was uh, was thrust upon him. Uh, well, uh, Lookman on for Walcott. Walcott was hurt. It was what it was. Uh, he made, and then he made two subs in the 76th. Uh, Baines in for, uh, for Lucas Digne, which I thought, okay, you know, you, you know that Baines brings you a little bit more on set pieces. That was fine. Uh, I, I didn't really get bringing in Umarnias for, uh, for Gilfie Sigurdsson at that point. And it's really, and Chris will tell you because every time it comes up in a game, I complain about it. Uh, it's a pet peeve of mine when I see managers in situations like that where they need a goal uh, and they just throw on a striker for a midfielder because, in theory, it makes sense to, to do so because you've got another guy that can finish in front of goal. But if you wreck your midfield shape to do it, you're never going to get the ball anywhere into a dangerous area to, to create a chance. Uh, and I think that's exactly what we saw. A midfield two of Schneiderlin and Tom Davis is is not going to get the ball forward to those two strikers. And when you're looking at Lookman and Dominic Calvert-Lewin out wide, those aren't guys that are necessarily going to be ball advancers either. And what we saw was exactly that for the last 15 minutes. We just couldn't get anything coherent generated going forward because we had two strikers sitting way in front of four midfielders who didn't really know how to connect the two lines. 
And to and to that point, I kind of thought that instead of uh, bringing on Umar for Gilfie, the play there is probably bringing on Kieran Dowell for Tom Davis because he can progress the ball and he can break the lines or just forego that third sub. I mean, there wasn't anything else on the bench to do there. It's not, you know, most of the time I want to see all three subs, but in this case with all the injuries, you didn't have to make that third one. Yeah, and then the only other options available off the bench were Stecklenburg, Tyus Browning, Lord help us, and John Joe Kenny. So it's not like, you know, he would have pulled any of those other guys either. It's a good point, and you're absolutely right. Uh, I also would not have necessarily uh, argued if he sat on that third sub, given the circumstances uh, in this one. Yeah, and Gilfie, like you guys say, Gilfie provide, can provide so much, and really having that attacking player going forward is really helpful. Um, but let's talk about the defense and, and something that has really been a problem for us has been set pieces. I, what is it? I, I don't know how many goals we've given up on set pieces already, but it's a significant amount compared to our open play goals. We have conceded six goals this season in the Premier League, four on set pieces, one from a penalty, and one from open play. Gosh. <laughs> Which, yeah. it's, it's not ideally what you would like. And Chris, no. let's, it's, let, what, what is happening here? What, what, what are we doing here with these set pieces? What can we change? What is What can we do? Because it's been pretty awful so far. I don't know that I have a solution, unfortunately, just because I'm not, um, I don't have my UEFA badges. And so that's generally looked down upon if you don't get those sacred cows on your resume. But, um, one of the things is it kind of happens with any sport and any coaches. This is very early in Marco Silva's tenure and he's trying to teach the players something brand new to them. And there will be growing pains with that. And I understand that, but I think we've reached a point where you either need to, go back to a system that they know until they learn the zonal marking and training or just just forget it or until the next international break when you have a lot of players available to train and you can kind of have a an intensive session of over a few days with it but you know I was I was talking to one of our other writers um about this a couple of days ago Zach who's has played college basketball and I hate to use kind of an an American analogy here but he pointed out that it's a lot like zonal defense on rebounding in basketball where you cannot physically watch a ball in the air and watch your man on the ground. You just can't do it. It doesn't work. Uh, you can't be two places at once. So I think that's, which made sense to me. Like it's, it's a physical impossibility. I'm not sure how you can kind of solve that within the bounds of the system. And I think that the, the other yeah. end point that you, that probably needs to, come up is that we've started what three different center back pairings in the first five games of the season right uh Jags and Jags and Keen uh Holgate and Keen and Holgate and uh and Zuma and that certainly is not helpful either especially when you consider that Morgan Schneiderlin also missed some time in there uh and he is both a big presence physically and also the sort of guy that you would expect to be helping to direct those things but all of those reasons laid out uh, at the end of the day, you got to be at a put up or shut up point when we get back from the break. Um, because if, you know, even if you knock out two of those goals that you conceded on set pieces, 
we're probably sitting on uh, on ten points instead of six, and uh, that's a big difference. Uh, so whatever the solution is, Marco's got to find it by the time that that we're we're back. It's another good reason that we should be happy that we hit the international break here, but it, now's the time to to figure it out. Well, before we move on here, just on the set pieces and Morgan Schneider specifically, I believe Silva came out and said how important Schneiderlin is to that zonal marking. Is that a good thing to be relying on that on just one player? Like, I feel like, you know, when we look at that zonal marking and really set pieces, it's probably not a good idea just to have one player be a serious, serious part of an entire system when defending on set pieces. Well, I, I think that there's probably two things to that. One is that there's probably some element of just coach speak in there where you're trying to deflect blame from your players and obviously from yourself if it's something that you think is going to work. So you, you point at something and go, well, you know, this is this thing that was out of all of our control is, is part of the issue. Um, but I think even if you take that at face value, I do again wonder to what extent the change in center backs puts more pressure on Schneiderlin when it comes to organizing things on those, because you would have expected going into the season, uh, if there was going to be one guy at the center back position who would have been the organizer on those sorts of things, it would have been Phil Jagielka. Uh, but he looks bad and then gets suspended. And now he's another guy that picked up an injury. that's going to have him out a couple of weeks. Uh, so somebody is going to have to be the, the vocal leader in those situations. And if it's not Jags, it's hard for me to see it being anybody else but Schneiderlin, at least until we have uh, more clarity on what the center back situation looks like going forward once everybody's healthy. Yeah. Didn't give up any set piece goals until uh, Jags got sent off, by the way. Just a little, <laughs> little fact for you there. Yeah. For, in the, in the what, 35 minutes? Yeah. Yep. Nailed it. <laughs> Well, I, I think we've hit on Huddersfield uh, a lot here, and I think that the, the general consensus is thank God that the international break is here because that is going to be a, a really big time for us, hopefully, to get healthier and, and really um, just get better over this international break. But let's clean up some stuff here, you know, some stuff that happened since our last podcast, and we'll start with Sandro. Sandro played uh, against Rotherham on Wednesday, moved on Thursday. Um, Chris talk about this uh he's on loan again um you know what does this mean for him can he really find anything here or is this just his final step on moving out of of Everton officially come you know either the January well not the January transfer window but uh, uh next year so uh, there's kind of two aspects to this for me um in hindsight you there's part of me that almost wishes he had stayed around until January because the last couple of matches that he played, he looked okay. Uh, you know, nobody really was able to watch the Rotherham game, but I'm told by my sources in attendance that he was better than normal. And Bernard's hurt, and Richarlison is suspended, and uh, just having another warm body around the senior team could have been useful. At any rate, he's on loan again because there's nobody outside the top seven or eight in the Premier League and the top two or three teams elsewhere around the world that can actually afford his wages they're in the, they're in the six figures which for someone of his performance or lack thereof is just it's completely nonsensical so well, I'm afraid that we may reach another Kevin Morales situation with Sandro where he just gets loaned out until his contract ends because there's nobody 
he he has no reason to take a permanent deal where he his wages get cut um basically and the yeah, other thing that um that is always worth bringing up with Sandro when we talk about you know what what is he really capable of uh the thing that people who would want to get behind Sandro I don't know how many of those people exist anymore um but surely someone somewhere is uh will point to the season that he had at Malaga in 2016-17 uh the last season before he moved to Everton and he put up 14 goals in in 30 appearances in La Liga uh for a pretty you know middling team that year and obviously that that jumps off the page here and especially since he was what 20 21 at that point um but important to note that that season he put up 14 goals his expected goals his xg for that season was 7 he doubled his goals output over what his xg said you know an average finisher would put up and when you think about the places from which sandro shoots which are everywhere he will shoot from anywhere that kind of says to you he probably had a lucky season more than he had a good one or he hit you know two or three really outstanding set pieces and that helped to inflate that goals tally but I think anybody who looks at Sandro and looks at his numbers and says where's the guy that scored 14 goals two years ago in La Liga has to realize that that guy was probably uh, never really there as well. Well, and I think it was also probably not only a luck thing, but a volume thing. From my impression was that um, Malaga, he was the focal point of their entire attack. So not only did he have license to shoot, there really wasn't anybody else who wanted to. He put up three and a half shots per 90 that season. I've got his numbers up in front of me, and that seems like a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think when Sandro came in, I think for the five million pound price tag that he had, we were all like, okay, like, you know, it, it's, you know, we're only paying five million pounds for him. But when the wages are as high as they are, it's hard to get rid of a player like that who doesn't perform and doesn't really show anything in the games that he's given. Um, and that's really caused some problems for Everton now with those wages, uh, and, and getting him to really move on here because for being honest, I, I, I to memory, can't remember one game where Sancho has really impressed um, many Everton fans, and, and it's really not looking like he's going to stay here too often I think or too, too longer. The only one that I remember is the League Cup match against Sunderland really early last season where he had a he was playing on one of the wings and he had a really nice assist for Nias and just looked pretty competent, and then you kind of realize, oh, so he's looked good against Sunderland and Rotherham. Got it. Yeah, exactly. And those are two teams that, uh, you know, they, they're not exactly the greatest, uh, competition, uh, for, uh, uh, you know, higher level teams up in the Premier League. But moving from players that, uh, you know, have moved on and moved to loans to players that are staying here and we'll hit on a couple names before we get to the big one, which we've already touched on. Uh, no homes for Galloway or Browning. Both of them unable to find loans for them. Um, and, and Adam, you know, is this kind of nearing the end of the road for them as players that, you know, they've gotten their chances in the Everton first team a few times, Galloway more than Browning, if I, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. um, is, is this kind of the end of the road for them not being able to find a team and really not finding a place in this first team here at Everton? I think, uh, I think it's maybe two different stories here. Uh, Tyus Browning, if memory serves, 
has has had injury issues off and on, uh, both through his time at Sunderland last season and, and his time at, at Everton before that. Uh, I don't suspect that Tyus Browning will ever be, you know, an Everton player or even a regular Premier League player, although he did make the bench to fill out the numbers uh, this weekend. But I, I think there's a, a world in which maybe Tyus Browning sticks with a championship-level team, uh, you know, and, and makes himself a decent career at that level. He's big. He's pretty quick. He's kind of like a poor man's Mason Holgate because uh, he's got he's got the size and the strength and the speed, but maybe just has not figured out a way to mentally put all that together uh, on the field. Uh, Brendan Galloway, I think, is a, a different story altogether. Uh, we still laugh all the time about Galloway when he was on Sunderland uh, last year on loan. We talked to uh, our buddies at Roker Report, the SB Nation Sunderland blog, about the guys that we had on loan there. Uh, and his his response uh, about Galloway was that he was amazed that technology had advanced so far that we could develop uh, animatronic football defenders who look like they actually should be playing football but have no functional value on a field whatsoever. Um, so, and that's coming from somebody who is watching Sunderland. So if if he was so poor at Sunderland that he couldn't even make the 18 most of the time at the end last year, and now they're in League One, oof, there's there's not a whole lot left for him, is there? It got so bad for Galloway at points last season that he got demoted to Sunderland's under-23 team. Um, and then he also came out and said that he would like to be transferred back to uh, MK Dons, his uh, original club, which was at the time a further division down. So uh, when a player is asking to go down a division, that's not a good sign. Yeah, not necessarily. And those are, are two players that are, are going to Galloway, I think, has a little bit of an issue now with Anthony Robinson really coming out, up through the Everton ranks. So it'll be interesting to watch out, see what happens with those players, but really no shot of seeing them in the first team, uh, you know, consistently anytime soon. But let's, let's hit with the, the big whale before we move on. And that's Ademola Lookman, the guy who throughout this transfer window, we weren't sure what was happening. At first, we thought he was going to stay and it was definite. Marco Silva was confident about that. And then some, there were some comments that, let us to believe he might be on his way out along with questionable injuries, I guess you could say. Uh, and Chris, we'll go back to you. He stayed, he played. What'd you think about how he played? And, and, you know, I mean, he can be a player that can give us a lot going forward or does he, is he, is he a, a Ross Barkley type player who doesn't get what he wants or, or the move he wants or whatever in the, in the summer transfer window and moves on in January? I don't want to refer to any of our current players as a Ross Barkley player, just because that's <laughs> that's a bridge so far and insulting that um, <laughs> it's kind of beyond the pale of of what I'm where I'm willing to go. But no, he Fair he point. played. Uh, I think he came on in the 55th minute somewhere in there on Saturday, and he was okay. Uh, he he looked a little bored and definitely a little bit slow, and that goes back to the fitness issues that Adam mentioned that I'm sure he's having. The thing is, when when he when he does kind of pick his head up and look interested. He's pretty good, and I think we saw that moment of quality flash when he sent that box across the ball that neither, I think, Sigurdsson or Calvert-Lewin could get on the end of, but it was low, it was fast, it evaded all the defenders, and you're like, okay, okay, I, I see what you got. Now can we see see it a little bit more consistently? And I think that the 
change to the 4-4-2 20 minutes after he came on uh, <laughs> is not helpful to him. Uh, I don't want to have to see Adam Lookman anywhere near his defensive third uh, ever. Um, obviously, in the 4-4-2, he needed to be dropping a little bit deeper, and his starting position was a, a little bit deeper as well, so he's picking the ball up uh, a lot closer to his own goal than I would really like, and I'm sure that than he would really like as well. So I don't think that it's a fair uh, display of his talents for his role at that point was kind of, you know, pick up the ball in the midfield and see if he can't dribble through three guys to get us forward because we can't figure out another way to get into the attacking third. So the fact that Silva was willing to throw him out there, obviously limited options, but the fact that, that Silva went there is, I guess, a good sign for that relationship going forward. And now it's just a matter of seeing what he can do once he gets into training week in and week out, because the need's going to be there for a little bit. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm sure all of us want to know what Silva said to Lookman as he was getting ready to come on there. Uh, a pretty sizable conversation, I guess you could say, for them. And we're hoping, I think all of us are hoping, that Lookman can really, you know, settle in forget about Leipzig and forget about all that stuff and just really focus on Everton and move forward and really give us what we all know he can give us going forward. By the way, just to put a quick bow on this conversation, uh, Tyus Browning is 24 years old. No way. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, uh, probably not good in terms of his uh, future <laughs> outlook. Just thought I'd throw that in there. How about, uh, how about Galloway? Galloway is 22. Okay. Fair enough. A little, little... Yeah, a little bit better for him, but yeah, exactly. Not good for Browning. But moving, we'll talk a little bit about some league stuff real quick here. And just really two games or two teams, really, that we want to hit on. And Adam, we'll go to you with Arsenal and Cardiff. You know, Arsenal did manage to get a win there, but they gave up two goals to a Cardiff team that we all know is not very good at all. Um, Is it, you know, what does this mean for Arsenal? I mean, that... Giving up two goals to Cardiff isn't great, but getting a win is always good on the road. Um, what does this say about this Arsenal team? Well, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's the old, they still are who we thought they were. Um, I, I don't think that, that we've seen anything from Arsenal that certainly in the last week that changed my attitude on them when we talked about them last week, which was, I don't think they're a very good team. I think they've got a lot of good pieces that don't make any sense together. Um, I think the midfield is an alarming combination of Granite Jaka and a couple of other guys with limited Premier League experience who maybe they'll fit, maybe they won't. And that's playing in front of a back line that, again, is not necessarily the world's strongest and a keeper who's not necessarily the world's strongest at this point. Uh, I I am still very confident that Arsenal is a catchable team in the top six for Everton. I don't really have any doubt that that that's something Everton can do if if they continue to to play at a top six type clip, that we could easily pip Arsenal before all said and done. Yeah, and that's uh, I, I agree on that. I think that this Arsenal team has not looked very good this year, and I think this, you know, we have we've been scoring goals and, and things are looking well. We've only had uh, you know we've had, we've got three ties now and one win in the Premier League. I think that we're looking better and I think you know 
given some time, will really perform here. But another team that is in the top six played a team that's performing, I guess, better than a lot of people expected to. Uh, and that's uh, Tottenham and Watford on uh, on Sunday. Uh, that's yesterday at the time of recording. They Watford performed really well again, and they looked, you know, they they got a win. They continued their 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 streak and and really surprised a lot of people with this win against Tottenham. Chris, we'll go to you. They play a four-two-two-two. You know, they've got some players uh, as in Will Hughes and Pereira as the as those attacking midfield too. What do you think of Watford's performance? Are they legitimate now after beating Tottenham? Uh, are they a team that can really challenge for top six? I'm just honestly kind of flabbergasted that they're doing all this without Gerard de la Feu. Um, <laughs> I couldn't really have envisioned that going into the season. Uh, I, I, I think it's a mirage. I don't see that they have the, the talent to keep this up over the course of the season. Um, certainly credit is due here because they've put themselves in a position early to where if you rack up enough points here, they're not really going to have to be worried about the drop or even anywhere close to it. I just don't think that they can sustain it. The defense is old and bad, and that's kind of a bad combination. You can be, you can get away with some things if you're young and bad, cough Mason Holgate. Um, but old and bad, not so much. And I think we'll probably slowly see them fall off as the schedule gets a little bit more tough here. Yeah, and worth noting that they opened the season at home against Brighton, at Burnley, who is very much still trying to find its way, home against Palace, and then home against Tottenham. So obviously those first three, not necessarily um, the biggest of challenges. Uh, their next four games, they're home against United, at a pretty decent-looking Fulham team, uh, at Tottenham in the League Cup, and at Arsenal. If they come out of that with, you know, three wins out of four, then maybe we have to start talking about if they're for real or not. I, like Chris, I don't trust that defense, and I don't really trust uh, Etienne Capu and uh, Decore as the holding two in front of the Metris. Uh, <laughs> it blows my mind that they've been as good as they have and that they've only conceded, what, three goals with that personnel? Yeah. But and who knows? You know, crazy later stuff happens fall, in the Premier League. Later this fall, they have a stretch that goes um, Liverpool, Leicester, Man City, Everton. So, you know, good luck with that and stuff, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, though, that's going to be a tough stretch for them. And I, like you say, like, there's a lot of confusing things about this Watford team, you know, Jose Alavas leads the league in assists. Pretty crazy. I don't really understand how that's happening. There's there's a lot of things that are happening with this Watford team that seem too hard to s- sustain for the uh, for the uh, men that they have there at that team. But all the power to them. They started off pretty well this season, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how they go moving forward. We're going to move into something that we didn't do last week, but we, we're going to, we're going to do uh, from here on out. Let's hit on some things that we're going to be writing, especially over this international break. Um, and and we're, Adam, we'll we'll start with you. Uh, you know, you're planning on, on writing a, a piece that uh, is on deciphering radars, and uh, you know, what do you, what do you what's that going to be about? Um, what's your goal here in writing that, and really just kind of explain what you're planning on writing. So I think that especially on Twitter, um, the, the football radars, you know, those, those nice graphics with the pretty colors, 
uh, that are used to basically define, okay, what is a player good at and what is he not good at? And, and how do we understand, um, what this player is really all about? Um, we see them a lot and, uh, I, I know myself included, we tend to, I think we look at them and we see a player's radar is, you know, it's really filled in and he's got a lot of colored area there. And you think, wow, you know, that, that guy must be pretty good. Uh, but there's a lot more, uh, context that has to go along with reading these things before we can, uh, determine, oh, okay, what does this really tell us? The, the example that I, um, I'm using in the post is, uh, <laughs> is one of Danny Ings through the first three weeks of this season, although he scored this weekend. So his radar so far this season probably looks even better than it did then, um, where his radar looks outstanding and, I'm not taking anything away from, from Danny Ings, uh, but there are details in, in his radar and the way that it's been presented by some of the folks who, who do do this work in terms of putting these radars together, um, that you have to look at all the little details in these things to be sure. Does this really say, uh, what I think it says? So I'm really excited to, to share that with folks and, and hear what folks have to say on, their thoughts on these very useful, very interesting tools for evaluating talent uh, and how we think of them in the in the bigger picture. Yeah, that's I mean, that's certainly something that could be very helpful, because I feel like a lot of times, you know, we see some of these these uh, Twitter pages posting these pictures and we're not really sure what exactly it's telling us. You know, so, for instance, for Danny Ings looks good right now, you know. Um, but it will be interesting to read that and really get an idea of what we're really looking at, because I think that a lot of people are a little bit, you know, confused about that and confused about some of these radars that we're seeing. I'm hopeful that that will uh, that will will get some some uh, questions from people answered and everybody will be a little little wiser for the experience. Absolutely. And now, now Chris, we'll go to you here and you're writing a. Uh, you're, you're thinking about writing a piece here on the Premier League Hall of Fame, and that's, uh, you know, that's a pretty big thing, the right pretty big uh, statement to make. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, really what's going to be packed in this article over the international break? Yeah, so I was kind of inspired, if you can use that term, a couple of maybe a week or two ago. Sergio Aguero had scored a milestone goal, and I can't remember what it was at this point, but a, a major milestone for City. And several people posed the question, is Sergio Aguero the best international import in Premier League history? Which maybe, I mean, I'm not going to judge you too harshly if that's, if that's your opinion, but, uh, I don't think he is. I think it's obviously Thierry Henry, but it kind of got me thinking about how we evaluate players in their historical context and, and versus their peers. So I've kind of taken a page out of the American sports book and decided to look at if, among players who are still active, they don't have to be active in the Premier League necessarily, like Ashley Cole, for example, plays in MLS for the Galaxy. Among active players, who would make a Premier League Hall of Fame? And now you can't just, you know, go willy-nilly and add 35 players. We kind of have to be scrupulous about this. But I, I do think it's an interesting exercise in kind of looking back and seeing, well, how just how good is or was this guy? Um, like looking at somebody like James Milner or Gareth Barry, where they were never flashy, but you, you kind of look back at their numbers and think, wow, that's, that's quite a career. So hopefully we provide some, some hot takes and some interesting discussion points where we can fill the time over the next couple of weeks. 
And, and are you going to pick one player at each position? How is this going to work out? Are you going to, you know, pick a couple forwards, pick a couple, uh, you know, central defensive midfielders, some attacking midfielders? How are you deciphering and really narrowing this down? Yeah, so my my idea at the moment is to have a class of five going in every year back to, I think it was 2011 or 10 was my cutoff point. Um, so we we can cover players like Ashley Cole and like John Terry and um, I guess technically Didier Drogba is still active um, in the USL for reasons, but I don't want to I don't want it to be an an encyclopedia or the length of a book. But um, no no positional restrictions, just uh, five five or six players a year, and kind of look at it that way. Awesome. Well, we're both we're all looking forward to hearing uh, or reading, excuse me, those both those articles. I'm sure they're going to be uh, you know really insightful in terms of things that we don't necessarily think about on a regular day basis, but something that we're all interested to hear about um, in the coming weeks. But moving on, uh, we're going to hit on some things here. We've got the international break coming up. And, and I think the biggest thing about the international break and Adam, um, we're going to go to you on this because uh, you have, uh, I think a better knowledge than most on this, the UEFA nations league. What is this? What is the point of it? How does it really affect everything? What's the purpose? Um, just give us an idea of what we're actually going to see over the next cu- uh, couple weeks um, as this UEFA Nations League gets kicked off. Uh, sure. So as you said, the the first matches in the, the Nations League uh, start this coming weekend. Um, England has Jordan Pickford playing for it, uh, playing in it. Uh, Schenk Tosin and Turkey, Iceland and Gilfie Sigurdsson are all uh, participating in one or more. Nations League matches uh, in the upcoming international break. And, and basically, I think the at least the original intent with the Nations League was to add this other kind of competition uh, onto the schedule that would reduce the number of, quote unquote, meaningless friendlies that teams were were playing in these periods between uh, Euro qualifying and the end of the World Cup and, and so on and so forth. Um, so basically... What UEFA has done is they've just divided up every team, uh, every national team in Europe into uh, four groups based on their current rankings. And so you start at Division A, and that's got, you know, your big name teams. It's got your Englands, your Spains, your Germanys. And then it goes so on and so forth down through B is the next best, then C, then D. Tozen and Turkey are in B, for example. Um, and basically... Then inside each of those, uh, those groups, we'll call them divisions, I think is the, the term that, that UEFA uses. Then you have your kind of typical tournament style groups of multiple teams within that division. So, uh, in division A, you've got a group that England is in. England's in a group with, uh, Spain and Croatia, which is <laughs> rough, uh, to say the least. Uh, top team. In each group at the end of the group stage uh, goes through to a knockout competition uh, to ultimately see who wins their division. The interesting thing is that the bottom team in each group uh, actually for the next iteration of the Nations League goes down a division. So in England's case, they're in a group with Spain and Croatia. There's a real possibility that England playing two very good teams could finish third in that group and actually wind up in division B of the nation's league. Next time the the competition is held. 
Um, overall, in terms of winning the competition or winning your division within the competition, uh, it doesn't really come with a whole lot of pomp and circumstance outside of the fact that you can say that you've won it. We'll see how teams ultimately evaluate the importance of this tournament going forward. We, we don't have any context to base that on right now. The only interesting thing uh, outstanding with that is that the last four spots in the European Championships, the last four qualifying spots, will actually be in part determined by the Nations League competition. Um, Nations League will end, I believe, after Euro, uh, Euro qualifying does, and basically they'll take a group of teams that did the best in the Nations League who have not already qualified for Euro and have them play in a playoff to determine the last four teams who get into Euro. So with that in mind, this may well end up being something that's a lot bigger for, say, Shanktosen and Turkey than for Jordan Pickford and England, because England's going to qualify for Euro, you know, barring anything catastrophic, whereas you can't necessarily say that with Turkey. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how those guys, Pickford, uh, Tosin, and Sigurdsson, uh, get looks in this competition, and interesting to see how highly their individual uh, FAs and national team managers rate this new competition. Yeah, it's certainly going to be interesting. I mean, obviously this is going to make things, I think, a little bit more competitive, at least for uh, for these friendlies, and I think that's what, like we mentioned, UEFA wants to do with that but a couple we mentioned this a couple of like uh some good games here going going through and a couple of players from Everton that will be playing in those games so Chris I'm going to give you a few few of the games that we're going to be seeing over the next uh couple weeks and maybe give me one that really stands out to you we have uh Senegal who will be uh having Ghana Gay uh, on their squad for an AFCON qualifier uh again Chenk and Turkey will be playing two UEFA Nations League matches which against Russia and Sweden. Iceland and Gilfi will be playing Belgium and Switzerland. Um, and then we have Richarlison and Brazil facing the United States and Anthony Robinson. So out of those, what's one game that, you know, we have an Everton player in that stands out to you and is a game that you're really looking forward to seeing? Uh, note also that England and Pickford have Spain in the uh... – in the UEFA Nations League as well on this break. Uh, just one other one that, that could potentially be one worth looking at. Yes, yeah, of course. Definitely. Um, I know that the Nations League is technically competitive at this point, um, but I'm still going to have to go with that Brazil-United States game. Uh, my dad's from Brazil. I'm a United States fan. Uh, Richarlison is playing for the first time at a senior level, and Anthony Robinson looks like he's probably going to be the United States left back of the future. I'm a, there's a small part of me that hopes that they get matched up against each other. I know Richarlison has been playing out left, but if uh, his manager wanted to move him out right for this match, I really wouldn't complain about it. Um, I think that would be, that would be um, appointment viewing in my house for sure. Yeah. And, and Adam, anyone for you that specifically stands out one that you're definitely going to be watching? I mean, I think England and Spain is without a doubt, uh, an interesting one, got to be the one with uh, the most talent on the field um, in this break. But I'll also say uh, I'll be keeping my eye on any match that Senegal plays over the break just because it's not exactly clear how healthy <laughs> Idrissa Gay is. And uh, he better be coming back to us in one piece. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. That would be uh, ideal for us. We, we would uh, really like to uh, see uh, Ghana Gay in the team once he comes uh, back here after the international break. And then I do have thing... a quick, uh, I do have a quick international related question for Adam though. Um, did, did you pick the England under 23 team uh, this week? Was that you? Did, uh, the England U20, the U21s? Yes, yes. My apologies. So the, the, uh, the interesting thing with the England U21s, uh, who are playing this, uh, at this international break as well. And as, uh, you know, as per the usual, there are a whole bunch of Everton players in this team. Uh, John Joe Kenny, Tom Davis, Kieran Dowell, Dominic Calvert Lewin, Adam Lookman all made the team as they have, uh, for the most part in the, uh, in the, the recent iterations of this team. Interestingly enough though, uh, Mason Holgate has not made the England U21 team for a couple of uh U21 Euro qualifiers uh that are upcoming this week and uh, I don't I don't really have any insight as to why that would be the case he has in the past gotten called into the team and I think uh, even as someone who is uh far from Mason Holgate's biggest fan I I think his play with Everton so far this season has definitely shown an improvement in his overall game such that <laughs> I would expect he certainly, if he if he was deemed to be worth having in the U21 team before, uh, that he certainly would be now, given the improvement we've seen. So just something interesting to to keep an eye on, uh, see if there's any kind of news or uh, understanding of why did the rest of the Everton contingent make that team but not Mason Holgate. Yeah, absolutely. And then, Chris, I think you read my mind there because that's exactly where I was going. You know, we were going to look at this – this U21s team's got a lot of Everton talent on it, and it's always good for Everton to see the younger players really getting a shot at, at the national level. And they'll be taking on uh, the Netherlands and Latvia and U21 quali- Euro qualifiers uh, over the international break. But finally, before we wrap things up, I think we've got to take a quick look over at West Ham as we're going to be playing them um, when we come back from the international break. Guys, what do you think of this game? Chris, we'll start with you. West Ham is is at some point we might have to start feeling a little bit bad for them because things have not gone well despite spending all that money in the summer transfer window um, and and things aren't looking good for them and and you know obviously on our perspective hopefully that's good for us and means a W on uh, on that Saturday Chris yeah so I reject the idea that it's possible to feel sympathy for West Ham uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate the sentiment there, but I don't know what it is about them that makes them quite so insufferable but uh here we are, and I can't say that I'm disappointed or really that upset to see that they've lost their first four matches with a goal differential of minus eight, which is tied with Huddersfield for the worst in the division um, yeah they just they spend a lot of money, but you kind of you kind of look at the players that they brought in, like Andre Yarmolenko, who has had a terrible year at Dortmund last year after spending most of his career in Ukraine. Um, they got a player on a free transfer from the championship in Ryan Fredericks, a couple of really unproven center backs. They're still rolling out Pablo Zabaleta. Uh, Jack Wiltshire was the grand midfield solution, so I think that kind of speaks for itself. Um, I'm not impressed, and I, I know this is kind of a cheap – opt out to say at this point looking at the table but I'm I'm almost positive that West Ham are going to hit the drop which is pretty amusing considering the financial resources and the size of their stadium yeah and Adam you know obviously like we mentioned last week anything can happen 
How do you see this one playing out against West Ham? A quick look. Obviously, hopefully, we'll have some of these injured players back coming out of this international break. What are you seeing in this game? What are you predicting? What do you got? Um, if Idrissa Gay uh, comes back unscathed, if uh, if Gilfie Sigurdsson comes back unscathed, uh, I think this one really has the potential to be ugly. Um, the West Ham midfield, and it's been this way for years, but especially this year, is is just a mystery to me, and I have no idea what they're they're trying to do uh, with their deep lying midfielders. They've they've been playing. Uh, they played last week in a 4-2-3-1 against Wolves um, with the two holding midfielders as Jack Wilshire and uh, and Carlos Sanchez. You may or may not remember Carlos Sanchez. He was one of the players uh, tasked with holding down the midfield for the Aston Villa team that got relegated a couple of years ago and was probably one of the worst teams in Premier League history. Uh, well, so West Ham interjection seen- on Carlos Sanchez, too. You also may remember him from the World Cup where he – handled the ball on the goal line in like the first five minutes of a group stage match and got sent off. Correct. <laughs> Same Carlos Sanchez that. Um, so <laughs> what West Ham has seen in him uh, to make him the ideal partner for Jack Wilshire or for Mark Noble, if, uh, if he, if he's in the lineup, you know, it's, it's a rotation between those three guys. Uh, and I just don't see any way how those two guys handle Sigurds and Schneiderlin and Ghana if uh, if all three are healthy, there's just no way. Yeah, and I, I think that we're we're looking at a game that we should uh, you know really grab a win here, and, and that would be you know another another game that we have a likelihood of winning. I think, and that would that would be ideal to get three four three more points there. But that about wraps it up for us. Uh, that's that's all we got for you guys today. Um, thanks for joining us, Chris and Adam. Thanks for being with me here. Uh, we got you know another podcast coming. Uh, keep listening. We were on iTunes, Spotify, all your major platforms. We're there. So make sure to keep listening and I uh, will talk to you guys next time.